The reading is the whole of Psalm 14. You'll find, find it on page 549 of the Church Bibles. And on the screen. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside and have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, no, not one. Will evildoers never learn, those who devour my people as men eat bread, and who do not call on the Lord? There they are, overwhelmed with dread. But God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is from Matthew, verse 1 to 16. Um, Matthew 5, sorry, verse 1 to 16. It can be found on page 968 of your Bibles. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up onto a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. This morning we're starting a sermon series 
that is called Credible Clues to a Creator God. And the reason that we're doing this is because there are credible clues to God existing, to him being present with us, still at work in his world. And if you want to convince somebody that something is true, then you need to have good evidence to support your argument. There's been an argument around that Christians are just plain silly because they believe in something you can't prove exists. The rational, clever people were saying, I can only believe in something that I can prove exists. And so I'll never be able to believe in God because I can't prove he exists. And they thought that their argument was watertight and comprehensive. But in fact, it's sadly and very badly flawed. We can't prove that God exists, but we can't prove lots of things that we believe in with all our hearts. I can't prove that my wife loves me. I can't put her into an experiment in a scientific laboratory and at the end of that experiment prove that she loves me. But I have got lots of evidence that she loves me. This morning, she picked up the beer bottle that was beside the armchair that I left there after I watched the rugby. And she took it into the kitchen, as I should have done, and she only very quietly said, you could take that beer bottle yourself. (laughs) That's the latest bit of evidence that my wife loves me. I believe that she loves me. That love changes my life. We can't prove that God exists, but if you're in a relationship, you very rarely can prove that somebody loves you. In the courts of law, there's something called the burden of proof, that if there is enough evidence, then something is proven in court, and you have to provide enough evidence to reach that point where proof is determined. So it's a bit like water building up behind the wall of a dam. It grows and it grows and it grows. You can't see until it comes to the top that it's there. But once it gets to the top, you have to admit that it is there and it's going to flow over the top and get you wet. So the burden of proof demands that we build up enough evidence that God exists so that we can reach a burden of proof that satisfies the needs of those around us. And so we need to have lots of good evidence that God does exist. Evidence to convince people that there is some water there. And in the end, it's only the Holy Spirit flowing into people's lives that will convince them of the truth, but we can have enough evidence to build up the pressure so that he can flow in. I was in London one time and somebody used this idea that you can't prove God exists against me. We were sat having a drink in a bar on the South Bank and he said to me, why do you believe in something that you can't prove exists? He said, you can't prove that God exists. In fact, there's no real evidence that God does exist. And the Holy Spirit was with me, and he prompted me to say, just look across the river. You see all those steeples of all those churches. You see the dome of St. Paul's. That's evidence that God exists. Because if God didn't exist, nobody would have built those amazing buildings. Nobody would still be worshipping in them. And then I said, and what about this? Because I was wearing a a shirt and a collar, and I took it out and I said, here, have this. I said, this is evidence that God exists. You know my story. You know that I gave up one career to take up another. You know that that was costly and difficult for me. That's evidence that God exists. 
take this, this is evidence, and it's real, so it must be real evidence that God exists. And he was a bit worried about that because in the circles that he mixed with, nobody believed that God was real. And he hadn't met somebody who was willing to argue that God does exist with him for a while. And not everyone's going to have one of these, but you might have a cross around your neck or a wristband or something that you can just say, look, this is evidence in my life. I wear this because God exists for me. There is evidence that God exists. And so today we're looking at the first big credible clue that God exists that we can use to help other people see that God exists. In our year of mission, as we're talking to people about Jesus, as we're meeting them and talking to them about God, we look at this evidence that God exists in the fact that we all share a sense of morality. A sense of morality of a moral order that seems to be stitched into the very fabric of the universe. A moral order that can only be there if someone put it there. And if someone put it into us. We all have a deep sense of what is right and what is wrong. The American cyclist Lance Armstrong uh, was proved to be using drugs and hormones and blood transfusions when he won his seven uh, Tour de France titles. And so he was stripped of all those titles. And he went on to a television program uh, and, and did an interview in which he argued that everyone else was cheating, so he was only making it fair by cheating in the same way as they were, as if that was going to get his titles back. But we know, don't we, that cheating is cheating. And cheating is wrong. And if you win something by cheating, then you lose. There was a story that in Australia there was a library and they put a little sign up after these findings came out. And they said, we have moved Lance Armstrong's autobiography to the fiction category of the library. <laughs> I like that. Library jokes. You don't get many library jokes, do you? So this innate sense of right and wrong has been there ever since we were formed. It's a pointer to a divine origin for this shared moral order. It's a sign that God exists. For someone must have planted this within us. It comes from outside of us. It comes from outside the natural laws that we see at work around us. Since ancient times, there has always been an awareness of certain ideals that connect us of truth and beauty and justice. They've been the foundation for civilizations like the Greek and the Roman civilizations. And they've been there right back from the time when the Psalms were written 3,000 years ago, right back to the book of Job, perhaps the earliest writing in the whole Bible. There's this sense of good and evil, of good and evil, of wicked people doing bad things and of good people doing good things. This sense is common to all of us, and it's uniquely human. And if it is, then its origin needs explaining. Where did it come from? We're left with the possibility or even the probability that the forming of a moral framework is a capability that is a gift from God. It was put into us. We are moral creatures. The presence of an objective moral order is a sign that we're made in the image of God because good and evil matter to God, they matter to us. 
C.S. Lewis developed this argument in his book, Mere Christianity. He showed that our notions of right and wrong act as clues to the meaning of the whole universe. This moral order he calls the law of human nature. He says at each moment we're all subject to different laws. We're all subject to gravity. That's why I'm stood here and you're sat there on your chairs. We're not floating about in the air. We're all subject to the law of gravity. We're subject to the laws of chemistry. Our molecules are held together by forces that uh, enable us to be coherent bodies. If those laws broke down, we'd all break down. We're even subject to the laws of the land. We may not always agree with them. We might even break them at points, different points of time, but we're subject to the laws of the land. And for everyone, there is a law of human nature, a moral order that everybody is subject to. Some people argue that different cultures have different laws. But in fact, the laws that connect us are far greater than the laws that divide us. In every situation down through history, honesty and integrity has been seen as good, and lying and cowardice are seen as bad. Those are common things. Look at the great stories of our time, from Lord of the Rings to Star Wars to Les Mis, even Harry Potter, they're all about the battle between good and evil. All are based on that fight. We may not always agree about how many wives we can have, that might differ between cultures, but everybody knows that child abuse is wrong. We know that deep inside, don't we? It sets off deep feelings within us when we hear a story about child abuse because it is wrong. And that sense shouldn't be there because Darwin doesn't do good and evil. His worldview is simply about the survival of the strongest and the most successful or the one who can adapt the fastest. The presence of an objective moral order is seen as evidence that we're made in the image of God. So if we recognize that, then we can see that this moral order is different from the other laws that are around us, the laws that help us uh, to do things in our own interests. There's nothing, there's nothing that is good for us as individuals in helping others necessarily that puts us in danger or discomfort when we seek to care for the weak and the vulnerable. It's not good to be entirely selfish, is it? I've never met anyone who wants to be known as a selfish person. It's good for us all to look after others, to look after those around us. It's even good for us to look after the guys who are homeless when it's costly. This week, our back door got broken uh, while our guests were with us. And it's costly to look after other people. But when we fail to do that, we're all diminished. The best explanation for our deep intuition of this shared morality is that there's an intelligence behind and beyond nature that has given us a knowledge of right and wrong, that acts as the foundation for the objectivity of our moral judgments. When I was a parent uh, with my first child going to school, I was alarmed because my daughter brought home a letter explaining that the children were going to choose 10 rules to make their school work. The children were going to pick, in effect, their own 10 commandments and then they would agree them, put them up on the walls and the corridors and remind 
uh, that would remind them of them in every moment of every day. And I made an appointment with the head teacher because I wasn't sure this was a good idea. And the head's response was that the children already knew what was right and what was wrong. She said, you don't need to worry that they're going to pick bad rules. They already know what's right and wrong. They already know that it's good not to hit each other. They already know that it's good to share. They already know those things. They're planted within them. I went worried that this was about a subjective morality and I came away convinced that there is something that we all share, an objective morality. No matter how young or how old we are, we all share this sense of what's right and what's wrong. In effect, we have a moral compass within us. And if there is a moral compass within each one of us, that compass has to point somewhere. That's how compasses work, don't they? The compass that we use to find our way around points north because there is a force that leads it to point north. It points in the same direction for everyone, everywhere. And the moral compass within us has to point somewhere. And if it does point somewhere, where does it point to? Look at the rise of the Nazi ideology of the last century. To many people, the Nazi regime was intellectually coherent. They'd formed a framework in which they could justify the things that they did. They could impose their people with laws. They told their people what they could believe. And the only way to challenge the Nazi regime was to argue that there existed a higher moral authority than the government of the German state. And this is what the Free Church in Germany did under its leader, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer spoke against the Nazis, Nazis and what they were doing. And that got him put in prison and that got him executed just before the war ended because he was prepared to stand up for his moral values. That's how important these things are. They're worth dying for. The question for the atheist is, where does this moral objectivity come from? Where does this moral order come from? They can't just be a purely human convention. I asked an atheist that I knew, what were his rules for living? How did he decide what to do in how he lived? And he said, well, it's obvious, isn't it? We should do to others as we would have them do to ourselves. And I said, yes, that is obvious. And do you know where it comes from? Do you know where, who said that first? Do you, know, do you know why that is the basis of Western civilization? We should always do to others as we'd have them do unto, uns, have them do unto ourselves because that was Jesus speaking God's word into our existence. That was Jesus telling us in the Sermon on the Mount that this is how we should live. There is a moral framework, and that moral framework comes from God. So we shouldn't be afraid to say this, and we should live with this moral framework as something that we depend upon, something that we rely on. For it does the church terrible damage when we fail to live up to the standards that the world expects us to live to. If we're saying that God exists and he wants us to live this way, then when we do bad things, when the church is involved in child abuse, and just this last week, the Catholic Church is having a big conference to try and sort that out amongst themselves. 
People know that we've gone wrong and, they, and we lose our authority, don't we? If we fail to live up to these standards. But failing to live up to those standards doesn't destroy the fact that those standards exist. So if you're with an atheist, there's two things that you might want to say to them. The first thing is, do they think that we all have a moral compass? Would they agree that everybody shares this concept of a moral order? Because if they do, you can then say, well, where do you think that compass points to? What is it that that compass is pointing towards? If it's not God, what is it? Because for us, this makes sense of this world that we live in. Our faith is a reasonable faith. This is part of the evidence that our faith holds together, that our faith works. We can say that that moral compass points to God. And then we could ask, why does this moral compass matter? Because it does matter. It matters so much that people go to fight wars about it. It gives us something to fight for. It gives us purpose and direction. In fact, some people think that the level of depression and despair that we see in our world at the moment is because people have lost this sense of there being a moral compass, a direction in which we should lead our lives. And that leaves us with a terrible burden of having to make our own rules, make our own plans for how to live. And we weren't made to do that. We weren't made to make those decisions. We were made to follow God's plans for us. And we need some structure in our lives. We need some order for society to work. Just this morning, I looked on the BBC website to check the news. Uh, I usually do that first thing in the morning. And there was a story about a man in Ipswich who's had to give up having milk delivered to his house because so many bottles got stolen from outside of his house. And he had a CCTV camera and he filmed, it wasn't the same person coming back every day, he filmed over 50 people taking his milk from his doorstep um, in the morning before he could get down to it. And he gave the film to the police and the police said, well, uh, what do you want us to do about this? And isn't it crazy that we can't have milk delivered in bottles to our doorstep anymore because that moral order has in a way broken down? Our society can't exist without a moral order. We need to bring people back. We need to argue for this moral order. Say that it comes from somewhere outside of us. Say that we need to live by this order and say that this order points towards a God who exists, a God who is real, a God who loves us and wants us to live good lives, wants us to live abundant life because we know that his order works and his way of doing life works. For his kingdom promises mercy and justice and beauty and truth. And that's the kingdom that we want to build. Amen. Let's pray for a moment about that. Loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have planted into each and every person a sense of the moral order that you created in all things. Help us to take this evidence of you out into our world to show that our faith is reasonable, that faith in you brings light to those in darkness. So Lord, let your servants speak your word with great boldness and stretch out your hand 
to perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. Amen. And just a reminder that there are some home group notes about this uh, short sermon series. So um, there's some copies of these um, in the foyer if you want to take one of those and uh, encourage your life groups or connect groups to follow those. Thank you.